0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. Ensuring a brighter, bolder future means investing in tomorrow, today. That's why Apollo is financing solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Learn more at Apollo.com.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to At Barron's. I'm Andy Serwer. And welcome to our guest, Mark Carney, former head of the central banks of England and Canada, and now a senior executive at Brookfield Asset Management, Bloomberg as well as the United Nations, busy guy. Mark, nice to see you.
2: Good to see you, Andy.
1: Let's start off with monetary policy, Mark. Uh, I think that you've said recently that you expect interest rates to stay higher longer, which has become somewhat of a consensus. And I'm wondering how we got from transitory to higher longer.
2: Well, uh, first, uh, inflation was higher for longer. And that was part of the uh, transition, if you will, of the stance of monetary policy. And I want to give credit to the Fed and other central banks. Uh, They've had to work hard over the course of the last 18 months to catch up to what was going on in the economy. Uh, The general message that's coming out of the major central banks, particularly the Fed, is, number one, policy is now restrictive. So it's going to slow the economy and with that, slow inflation. Secondly, uh, it is going to need to remain restrictive for a period of time, therefore higher for longer. And the third thing, which I think gets a little less attention, and it bounces around with data. There's always data and and some noise. But a little less attention is their bias is to tighten policy a bit more than uh, to look for immediate opportunities to loosen policy. So you bring that together. uh, The bigger picture message is exactly that. Rates have reached a level where they're starting to do their job. They're going to need to stay here for a while. And the data is really going to need to fill in, particularly on the labor market side and on the inflation side, before we start to see any relief on interest rates.
1: Yeah. Error on the side of tightening, perhaps making sure we don't repeat the 1930s or the 1970s. I want to ask um, about the Federal Reserve and what you think they could have done better and could be doing better.
2: Well, uh, the first thing is uh, there were a couple of things that with the wisdom of hindsight and, you know, some people criticized it at the time, in fairness, uh, that they, I think, would wish they had not done. Uh, the first was they came out with a new monetary policy framework. Uh, they don't talk a lot about it a lot now anymore, but mm-hmm. it called the average uh, inflation targeting, which basically tied their hands. Uh, they basically said, look, we're not going to start to loosen policy uh, until we've made up pass under inflation. And in fact, we're going to keep rates low and provide stimulus such that we return the economy to where it was prior to the pandemic. And by, when I say economy, mm-hmm. more specifically, they were talking about the labor market, and not just the labor market as a whole, but for all groups in the labor market. So that's very, uh, those are very high bars in terms of loose policy. And what happened because of that, And then the second thing with the wisdom of hindsight that they would, I think, regret and more or less have said is that they viewed a series of price pressures as transitory. They turned out to be more persistent. So the combination of those two is they left policy too loose for too long. But let me say a word in their defense. I mean, I was a member of the world's tightest mutual admiration society, the (laughs) group of central bankers, um, which is uh, they could have acted earlier, they should have acted earlier, But they would have shaved off the the peak of inflation. That would have been better for Americans. It would have been better for the global economy. But we still would have had that big rush of inflation because the big picture thing that happened with the pandemic, with uh, Russia's illegal invasion of uh, Ukraine, uh, with the change in the geopolitics, is we've had a series of supply shocks. And central banks have had to recalibrate the economy to line up with where supply is.
1: But Mark, isn't monetary policy at odds with fiscal policy? would say with the Chips Act, IRA, and but maybe that's a good thing. In other words, is this how you create a soft landing?
2: Well, that's it's an interesting question. I mean, and it's the right way to frame it. First, as a central banker, you take fiscal policy as given. Uh, so it takes a long time for governments to pass legislation. You don't know whether legislation is going to pass. After all, the Inflation Reduction Act was passed right after the CHIPS Act, but nobody who passed the CHIPS or few who passed the CHIPS Act expected the IRA to be passed. And those were two huge pieces of legislation which, as you rightly imply, are driving a huge amount of investment in in America and they will uh, continue to do so. That's adding stimulus to the economy. I personally think that it's making this economy stronger, the supply of the economy stronger, the country more competitive. But it does mean that you have to do a bit more recalibration on monetary policy. Now, good thing is the Fed meets every six weeks or so, they can make those decisions to adjust and that's what they've been doing.
1: And one last thing here, isn't it the case that monetary policy creates higher rates creates to slow down the economy and that creates unemployment? Isn't there a way to slow an economy down without creating unemployment, which disproportionately hurts poor people?
2: Uh, a couple of things. One, uh, inflation disproportionately hurts poor people as well. That's mm-hmm. the first and foremost. And that's why the Fed has given the mandate to lower inflation as well as maintain maximum employment. They have a dual mandate, as you know. Um, the second thing is what's actually happened this time is the Fed and all the other forces on the economy have done something quite remarkable, which is the easing in the labor market has been on job vacancies. Uh, we started out the recovery in the United States with many more, a record number of vacancies relative to the number of people who are unemployed, who could potentially fill them. And what's happened more is that those vacancies have come down, companies have found other ways to move forward, and the unemployment rate uh, you know, is, is less than 4% uh, at present. So the labor market is still very tight even though the Fed has raised interest rates by more than 5%, Mm -hmm. um, uh, and uh, we've had inflation coming down, it hasn't come down all the way, and I'm not saying that there wouldn't be um, some uptick in unemployment, but that will be in the context of balancing things and helping make sure that inflation gets back under control, which really does pay dividends for uh, all Americans, but particularly those Mm -hmm. who are on fixed incomes or who are poor.
1: Fair enough. Shifting gears, Brookfield. Tell us about this company and what do you do there?
2: So uh, I'm the chair of Brookfield Asset Management. Uh, Brookfield is a leading alternative asset manager. We have $850 billion under management, uh, a substantial portion of that, over $100 hundred billion of which is our own capital. So that makes us somewhat unique. Uh, and what we do is we really invest in the backbone of the global economy. Um, so we are a leading uh, investor in renewables and transition assets. We may talk more about that. We mm-hmm. more or less pioneered uh, infrastructure investing so think not just pipelines and other infrastructure, but think data infrastructure towers, uh, data centers, and others. And, and that's been exploding in recent years. That trend is going to continue. Uh, we're a major uh, holder of real estate. Um, so if we have 80 billion in renewables, 160 billion in infrastructure, we have about 270 billion of real estate assets around the world of all types. Uh, large private equity firm, big private credit business, and an insurance business. So we're, but. We we're, we're, uh, have very broad strategies, but with uh, some consistent themes. Think real assets. Mm-hmm. And this is a company that grew out of being an operating company. It's over a century old. we become an asset manager, but it's retained that operating ethos.
1: Canadian company. Yes. And there is also another public piece of it, Brookfield Renewable Partners, which is 60% owned by Brookfield. Can you talk about that and how that fits
2: in? and? Yeah. So we have, um, we have like other alternative asset mm-hmm. managers. We have pools of assets where we raise money largely from institutions, right. uh, pension funds and others, and we invest those. And those, those funds tend to have, let's say, a 10-year life. So we right. make the investments, help the business turn around. We also have a couple of vehicles, and Brookfield Energy Partners is one of them, which are basically perpetual vehicles. They're public companies. Right. We own the majority state they invest in great assets and they own them and they run them uh, you know potentially perpetually because they're great assets Uh, and so Brookfield Renewables is one of the largest renewable players in the world Um, if I put uh, Brookfield as a whole so renewable partners plus other assets we have renewables you know we have over 25 gigawatts in operation but a hundred and over 150 gigawatts in our pipeline so we are one of the largest developers of renewables around the world And let me make one other point, if Mm -hmm. I may, Andy. All of this starts to fit together. So we're one of the biggest builders and operators of data centers. But when the tech companies are building new data centers for cloud, for AI, compute, and others, they only want renewable power to power those data centers. Because they have set themselves very strict uh, environmental goals that don't operate at the middle of the century, but operate at the end of this decade.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. As one of the world's largest alternative asset managers, Apollo is generating investment-grade credit, providing greater access to more resilient and diverse pools of capital, and helping to fill gaps in America's financial ecosystem. Learn more at Apollo.com slash private credit.
1: What do you make of the carnage though in these clean energy stocks and the, the entire sector has been under a lot of pressure and major projects like offshore wind have been canceled. And, and why would people why should people invest in, in this uh, industry?
2: Well there's a couple of things first a couple of lessons from that. One, you have to be incredibly disciplined when you're putting major capital to work and that is true if I'm building a data center or I'm, I have a renewable asset as operators what we do when we develop renewables wind solar hydro uh, battery storage etc is we make sure we have all elements in place before we strike the deal so we are one of the largest procurers for example of solar power in the world Mm -hmm. so we have the set contract we know we know how much it's going to cost we have the uh permitting in place we have the offtake, in other words, the buyer of the asset. Right. And then we're in that position is when we put the deal together, the financing, build it out so we're not taking massive construction risk, price risk because commodities change or because interest rates change. Because we know as somebody who's been in this business for decades, all of those things change. Sometimes they give back to you because they go down, but often they take away and you need to and you need to have the discipline around it. In order to have that discipline, you need to have experience. We've got that experience. And you also need to have scale. You need to have global scale.
1: But, this, but the entire sector is under pressure.
2: Well, the sector is under pressure because not everybody followed that. That's the first point. Secondly, um, the uh, the bigger picture is what's happening is the scale of investment that's happening in clean power. So if you've got that discipline, you have that reach, that global reach, um, and you have the firepower; um, you can take advantage of these situations. And I'll, let me just put mm-hmm. a number, a couple number, one number around it, which is: if I go back five years ago, about five hundred billion dollars was invested in renewables, writ large. Um, that and in, in clean energy it was about nine hundred billion, so it was about half. Today, this year, it'll be one point eight trillion in renewables, and about the same amount, nine hundred billion, in mm-hmm. conventional energy. So that sector is going parabolic. It's going to continue, but it's going to need people like Brookfield who've got that experience and have that reach and discipline.
1: So is that too much money chasing not enough deals, which is lowering returns? I think
2: what's happened is that people struck some deals, a number of deals, on the basis of old assumptions. Mm -hmm. We all know, your viewers know, the world's changed. Uh, interest rates are higher. They're going to be higher for longer. We just talked about that. Right. Uh, there has been uh, cost inflation in a variety of industries. So if you locked in a deal on the on, on the price, if you will, five years ago, or you made your assumptions based on the price five years ago and commodity and financing costs five years ago, yeah, you're, you're, you're going to get your head handed to you. That's not what we do. And that's why we... Uh, that's why we're going to come out of this. In There's time.
1: also been, as I said, canceling of projects like Rishi Sunak canceled the phasing out of uh, gas cars and boilers. What do, what do you make about that? There seems to be backsliding. I guess. I'm yeah, saying. I
2: mean, I think what uh, the uh, UK Prime Minister did was uh, he shifted uh, the date that they, from 2030 to 25, uh, 2035. He aligned the date in which in the UK, which is the same as the date in Europe, and happens to be the date in Canada as well where there's no longer going to be sales of internal combustion engine mm-hmm. vehicles. Uh, so it was an adjustment. Um, it's, uh, in the end, the retooling of the auto sector, I think is uh, proceeding in place. And that brings me back to another point. When you look at the scale of investment that's happening right now in the auto sector, uh, it is all, about electric drive chains, uh, trains, um, uh, batteries, uh, and ultimately the build out of, uh, of of what the auto sector is going to be.
1: We could talk about sustainability all day, but speaking of the British PM, I want to ask you to wade into British politics. You recently okay. were complimentary about Rachel Reeves, who is a Labour politician. Does that mean you support Labour over the Tory Party?
2: No. I look. It was a. Uh, Rachel Reeves is a very capable uh, uh, economist. She's a capable uh, uh, politician. I I noted uh, the other day that uh, Ken Clark, the former uh, conservative chancellor, uh, said the same thing I said uh, and complimented her skills. So uh, she's got a lot of fans, uh, uh, but you know, You have elections for a reason and parties have to, uh, certainly in that system, the parliamentary system, you have a number of candidates, they have to have their, what they call manifestos, we would call platforms, Um, and uh, we'll see what happens a year from now.
1: Canadian politics. A recent newspaper report suggests that you haven't ruled out making a run for the leadership of the Liberal Party, they already have a leader, Justin Trudeau. <laughs> well, exactly. So, what um, would you bring to the table, and why should a central banker, why would a central banker make a good prime minister of Canada?
2: Well, a uh, couple of things. One, uh, as you rightly say, uh, there is a leader uh, today, uh, Prime Minister uh, Trudeau. There's uh, There are other people in other parties in Canada who are vying for his His position uh, when when the next election comes. So uh, I think the question is a hypothetical: is Mm -hmm. when you know when uh, at at any point in your life would you would you rule this out? No, I wouldn't rule it out. Look, what do what do I have? I I have been a central banker is a big part of my life, Um, but I was also an investment banker, uh, and now I'm an an investor. Uh, The core of what I do is at Brookfield, uh, and we invest and we invest in the real economy. You know, one thing that and let's put politics uh, to one side. The big trends, and you've been touching on them, what's going on in the world? We're deglobalizing. the world's being rewired, mm-hmm. right? Because of tensions, US, China, other factors, what we're seeing, seeing as we speak. Uh, it's deglobalizing. it's digitizing at enormous pace. Uh, I think people are just beginning to get a sense of how AI is going to transform, but what they probably don't have as much a sense on is what that means for physical investment in data centers, in compute and beyond. That's directly in our, in, in our wheelhouse, if you will, our business, and it's decarbonizing. That 1.8 trillion mm-hmm. uh, figure I gave you, three times what it was five years ago, that's just gonna keep going up. And so all of those areas we're involved in, and you know, I'm involved with the partners and uh, my colleagues at Brookfield in that, and that brings mm-hmm. some expertise that's relevant in this world.
1: And not insignificantly, perhaps to Canadians, you also played hockey.
2: I, yes, you didn't did mention I did. that. I did not mention that. You but it's it's common. Well, we yes, almost all of us played right, hockey right. at some
1: point. I guess so, I want to shift gears and ask you about Bloomberg. You're the chairman of that <laughs> company as well. What exactly is your remit there, and and what can we expect publicly? It's a very private company, of course.
2: Yes. Um, well, look. Um, first thing to say is uh, Mike Bloomberg and uh, and and his uh, fellow partners have built an amazing. Uh, company. Uh, and, and as well, Mike is one of the greatest philanthropists of our age and, you know, arguably uh, of all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's very focused on both of those legacies, naturally. Bloomberg as a company is an important part of the financial market infrastructure and the role it plays in serving, uh, you know, many of the people you serve and and, and beyond, uh, but as well, continuous philanthropy. And uh, you know, the, the, the proceeds, the value of Bloomberg, much of the value of Bloomberg, the company, goes to those philanthropic efforts, many of which uh, are centered uh, in the United States. And you, know, you need a good governance structure for the company, and, uh, and he's refreshing the board, and he asked me to come as, uh, as chair, and, and, and that's, that's what I'm doing.
1: When I ask you about the United Nations, maybe COP28, which is coming up yeah. in Dubai soon, What can we expect from that?
2: Well, it's uh, look, I think it's going to be quite a productive meeting, or it has the potential to be a productive Mm -hmm. meeting. Because one thing that the COP presidency is doing, and unusually, in fact, I'm sure this is the first time the COP president has been a CEO of a major company. It's an energy company, uh, but he's bringing around the table, as well as the official sector and the NGOs, but also the core of the corporate sector, because after all, almost all of the investment that's necessary for us to decarbonize are done by companies. They're financed by people like Brookfield, but they're done by underlying operating companies. So what should we look for? We should look for a couple of things. One, uh, we should look for some form of deal in the oil and gas sector to get rid of methane when we're producing oil basically by 2030. So zero methane oil production Uh, and also improving the efficiency again, just of the production and transportation of oil and gas. If that deal is struck, we could be reducing emissions by 5% 5 by 2030 alone for that alone. So they're, they're aiming high there. Um, secondly, um, we need to, the world needs to come up with a better way of financing the transition in the developing world. Um, we're actually beginning to do Mm -hmm. a pretty good job in the United States and the other developed economies but there's there's just not the money for the developing world and it has to be done in private sector terms so we need structures that are going to work that look for something around that Uh, I don't want to front run the cop but I think Mm -hmm. they've got some good ideas thirdly um, there's a need to um, to accelerate And the ira does part of this but it needs to be done on a global basis accelerate new technologies like hydrogen carbon capture and storage and part of the way you do it is you get companies um, to make commitments to buy those technologies a few Mm -hmm. years hence and then Mm -hmm. that drives the investment there again because he's getting the right people around the table i think there's a a prospect of getting uh, real progress there last thing and i won't take up our time on this Mm -hmm. there's a series of important plumbing tweaks to the financial system um, that just help with information, help with structure of markets, and that will make sure we get capital you know, to people who have solutions uh, for addressing, uh, addressing uh, greenhouse gases uh, and make it more efficient. So I think there's mm-hmm. quite a bit there. There's a whole other set of agendas, but for, right. from my perspective, those are the ones that are most important. Final question, Mark, and maybe
1: you can help me get to the bottom of this. Thanksgiving. <laughs> okay. it's november in the united states thanksgiving yeah. season but you've already had thanksgiving in canada which yeah. is in late october but my question is is canadian thanksgiving really a thing what's the difference it's why
2: is it not the same day uh it's well it's it's a it's really a thing uh it is but it's a little more of a harvest festival, if you will, mm-hmm. in Canada than it is in the United States. I mean, it's a unique holiday in the United States. I fully recognize this. I've lived in the United States. It's a fantastic holiday uh, here. Uh, in Canada, you know, it's early October, actually, as it works out. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, you know, you've got to the end. You have the harvest. So, you know, that traditionally, that's what you would have done. Um, and you're giving thanks for that. It's a natural thing. We, yes, we have turkey. We have mm-hmm. I mean, my family. would have pumpkin pie. Uh, and I, it's a good holiday, but it's on a Monday. You know, a holiday on a Monday is not quite as great as a holiday on a Thursday because then that leads into the whole weekend. And, you know, the homecoming aspect of it in Canada is not as strong as it is in the U.S. You know, you really want to be home, right, in mm-hmm. the U.S. on Thanksgiving. Uh, so uh, there, I, I accept there are some differences uh, between the two, but that, you know, in diversity comes strength.
1: Right. And so it's kind of the same, but kind of different. Mark Carney, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. This is at Barons. I'm Andy Serwer. We'll catch you next time. The production team for At Barron's is Elias Miladu, Rebecca Bisdale, Kinga Rojcik, Joe Lusby, and Laura Salaberry. The executive producers are Kristen Bellstrom and Melissa Haggerty. We'll be back with a new episode next week.
0: This podcast is supported by Apollo Global Management. By providing companies with access to flexible financing solutions and partnering with management teams, Apollo is there every step of the way to drive positive outcomes for businesses and power economic growth. Learn more at Apollo.com.